Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us for a Wednesday. We're right in the middle of your work week, and we're going to get right in the middle of all the information that's out there today and talk about it. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. I also serve as the Director of the Office of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And I'm currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville, where you're invited to join us every Sunday at 1030 for worship if you are currently not worshiping with another group of people known as the body of Christ or the church. All right, uh, let's dive into a little bit of news from South Carolina. It became pretty clear yesterday in meetings and different conversations that I was able to have yesterday that the heartbeat bill is pretty much dead. Now, we've, we've been trying to figure out a path. You know, there's been a lot of discussions about how do we get some kind of legislation passed because you've got the Senate pretty much wed to the heartbeat bill and nothing else, and you've got the House pretty much wed to the Human Life Protection Act that protects life beginning at conception and nothing else, and the Senate says they're not going to pass the Human Life Protection Act, and the House says, no way, we're not going to pass the um, the heartbeat bill. So um, some discussions discussions took place yesterday that are important for the remainder of the legislative session, and this is my best gut prediction and understanding. The heartbeat bill is not going to be considered seriously in the House. They may today they're going to debate the Human Life Protection Act, and if you by the way if you want to contact your House member, if if you'd like to see the Human Life Protection Act get passed and get over to the Senate, it would be a good thing to contact your House member today and encourage them to vote for it. There's going to be an attempt today to attach the heartbeat bill, likely, we're, we're hearing that that's going to happen, to the Human Life Protection Act, or maybe to amend the Human Life Protection Act with the heartbeat bill. That's not going to be successful. They, they, they don't have the votes for that. Um, and so the Human Life Protection Act will emerge from the House in some form. I think it will pass. There's going to be a pretty spirited debate, as I wrote to South Carolina Baptist pastors this morning. There's going to be a pretty serious uh, spirited debate over the exceptions, because there's a lot of folks in the House that absolutely do not want the list of exceptions that the Human Life Protection Act have attached to them as it came out of committee, got through the committee process with the exceptions intact. Remember last time they took the exceptions out and then they put them back in on the floor before that bill went over to the Senate during the special session this past summer. Well, the Senate pretty much insisted on fatal fetal anomaly as being one of the exceptions. So they um, that that is actually on the Human Life Protection Act now, along with rape and incest and life of the mother. Now, you may say, well, it's, it sounds like that's really not much of a bill. I mean, if you're protecting life beginning at conception, but you've got those major exceptions, doesn't that water down the bill so much that it doesn't have any effect? Well, no, but because, again, rape and incest are very rare occurrences. 
the requirements the requirements for rape and incest require in the bill reporting to law enforcement that's going to that's going to keep the the number that's that are claimed you know the purpose of that of course is to prevent crime law enforcement needs to investigate if a crime has been committed but also it is going to keep the number of people down who would maybe use rape or incest as as a reason to get an abortion when, in fact, a rape or incest hasn't occurred because if you file a false police report, that could get you in hot water. So it's, it's, a, it's a measure that's primary function is to make sure that if a crime's been committed, a crime is reported and a crime is investigated and someone is brought to justice, hopefully. But the other advantage we just talked about. So um, that's that's in the bill. And, of course, fatal fetal anomaly, you hear that and you think, well, that just means if the baby's got any kind of birth defect, then the baby can be aborted. No, it has to be a fatal, note the word, fatal fetal anomaly, meaning two doctors have to verify that the baby cannot live outside the womb. This is an, an anomaly that says that the, that the only environment the baby could live would be uh, inside the mother. Once the baby's born, the baby doesn't have any chance of living because of its deformities or abnormalities. And so that's, that's part of this bill. Now, I know everybody has a story. Everybody. I, I, I don't know too many people that I've run into that don't have a story about the fact that they were having a baby. The doctors said the baby wouldn't live. If the baby did live, it would live a very short amount of time and then pass away and be in a lot of pain. And those people have children that are active and going to school. And the people who said that, you know, there's no chance here were wrong about it. So, yes, there's uh, evidence that that's the case. But, but in this case, if you have – they've done just about everything they can to try to make the fatal fetal anomaly exception at least make some kind of sense when you have two doctors that have to verify um, that there's not a chance for the baby to live, that then the parent can choose. It doesn't mean there has to be an abortion, but it means that the parent can decide, okay, we want to have this baby born and see if you know God may have a different plan. Uh, but if the parent chooses, there could be an abortion in that circumstance. Now, today, you're going to see some some pretty strange stuff going on over in the House. You're going to see when there's an attempt to, rem- to remove the exceptions from the bill, you're going to see um, the, the, the Democrats are going to vote for that. They're going to join, like there'll be a certain number of Republicans that want a pure bill. And in a perfect world, that's what I want. I, I want a pure bill. I want a bill that bans abortion beginning at conception, with the only exception being the life of the mother, and that's the actual physical life. No, we're not talking about emotional health or anything else. We're talking about a life for a life. Um, you know, I, I would rather the other exceptions not be there. But the reason the Democrats were, will vote to take that, those exceptions off, it would appear that they're agreeing, trying to strengthen the pro-life bill. But, of course, what they're doing is they're hoping that with the exceptions gone, if they pass the bill without the exceptions, then the Senate may not even take it up. Now, the Senate may not take up the Human Life Protection Act anyway. There's a lot of pushback in the Senate about it. I'm going to get to that part in a minute. But um, but still, it, the chances of it passing in the Senate uh, that are very minimal now 
would be almost gone if if the bill goes over there without fatal fetal anom- anomaly and without um, the other exceptions that that, that probably will be that the House will try to take off today. So let's just uh, let's assume for a minute that the House is successful in passing the Human Life Protection Act with the exceptions, and it goes over to the Senate. We're going to need unprecedented pressure on the Senate. And I'm not talking about yelling and screaming and being angry and calling people baby killers and telling them that they have blood on their hands. Uh, Please don't do that. Uh, That is not the way to persuade people to come around to your way of thinking. But you need to call your senator and tell them, and and I would go ahead and start calling now because, I mean, this, this is the only path, really, that we have forward to protect life by the end of this legislative session and get something back before the Supreme Court that could be ruled to be constitutional now that we have a new justice on there that hopefully is going to be conservative. So you, you need to start putting pressure on, on your senators now by contacting them. That, that's what I mean by putting pressure. Contact them. Tell them, please vote for the Human Life Protection Act. You're pro-life. You want to protect life beginning at conception. And get as many people as you can around you to do the same thing. Send them an email. Give them a call. Um, whatever method that you can use to contact them, see them in person. But let them know that you're out there and that your voice matters. The Senate is referencing polls that they say that they've got and that some of them are in the districts where some of these senators are are staunchly opposed to the Human Life Protection Act. These polls say that South Carolinians are willing to protect life beginning at I mean uh, beginning at six weeks, but they're not willing to protect life beginning at conception to have no abortions. I, I don't know what the polls say. Um, I, I don't run my life by polls. I, I run my life by what God says in his word. And that's why I've always been a proponent. I've always wanted life protected beginning at conception. That's, that's what I would like to see happen. But the chances of that happening are not great because of resistance in the Senate. So uh, we're at 22 weeks right now. And we're approaching, we're, before this thing, the, the CDC is saying that we're getting more and more abor- abortions every month. We could get up to as high as 1,000. I was a meeting, in a meeting yesterday where we were discussing this, and I just took a jar and put 1,000 pennies in it. And I went in, when we went into the meeting, I set the jar down and I said, you know, while we're having this discussion, we probably should kind of focus on this jar because the number of pennies in this jar represents the number of, abortion, of abortions we're going to be up to eventually here in South Carolina per month if we don't do something. And so, you know, just, just keep that in mind as we're having these discussions. So the strategy now, pass the Human Life Protection Act in the House, send it over to the Senate. The author of the bill, the leaders in the, in, of the bill in the House— want the exceptions to stay on there. There's a lot of people in the House that don't want that, and I understand that. 100% I do. But for I really think that if there's any chance for the Senate passing it, the exceptions have to be included. And then we're going to have to immediately start putting pressure on the Senate. Uh, calls, cards, emails, 
If you've got their phone number, send them a text message. But again, always, always do so with respect. Let them know what you think. You're, you're not helping yourself. You're not helping your cause when you begin to call them names or get nasty uh, about it. In fact, you know, somebody just think about how you feel when somebody does that to you. Do you does that make you feel more inclined to work with that person or to come over to their way of thinking? Or does that cause you to get your back up and just say, well, if you're going to treat me that way, then I'm not even going to consider what it is you want. So be be respectful, be forceful. I mean, there's nothing wrong with saying, look, this is the right thing to do. This is we're talking about the lives of babies. Please join me in in getting this done. I mean, nothing wrong with any of that. But uh, try to, I mean, keep it civil, and but do it. I mean, if you don't know how to get in touch with your senator, uh, sc.statehouse.gov, you can find your House member there, your senator there. Right on the front page, it tells you how to put in information that will tell you who your senator and your House member are in South Carolina if you don't know. And then you can click on that, and it, you, it'll tell you how to send them a message. Uh, you can call their office and leave a message. You can send them uh, a message over that website, sc.statehouse.gov. It's where you need to go to find all that. Okay, the CDC came out with a report this week that a lot of people are talking about. I I haven't um, talked about it. We, we haven't really gotten into some of the, the more disturbing numbers, but I wanted to take a minute and do that this morning. Data collected in the fall of 2021, which would have been – sort of the time that we were coming out of the pandemic. This would have been, this is the first data that's been collected by the CDC since the pandemic, since the lockdowns began. And of course, a lot of this information that I'm going to share with you right now is being blamed on COVID, that this began, you know, teenage depression, teenage suicide, ideation, all of that began as the lockdowns hit and as COVID it's, it's a byproduct of the fact that we had to protect ourselves from COVID by these uh, lockdowns that we went into for a period of time, and some states are still experiencing to some degree. So here's the, here are the numbers, I, and, and we may stop and, and talk about each one for a minute, but they're really bad. Nearly three in five high school girls surveyed, that would be 57%, reported feeling persistent sadness or hopelessness that's an 11% increase since 2011 when the rate was 19%. Now, something happened in 2010 going into 2011 that nobody's really talking about, at least not at the CDC and not in the context of this report, but I think it bears notation. You know, social media began to explode about 2010. And so as for whatever reason, it appears that young girls, teenage girls, are more affected by spending a lot of time on social media than teenage boys. And we'll see some numbers to back that up in just a minute. But as we see, 60% or rather 57% of persistent sadness or hopelessness. I mean, that's over half of teenage girls that report. Now, this is self-reporting, but they report that this is how they feel. This is not a momentary, I've got the blues today kind of thing. I mean, this is a persistent. When the word persistent is in there, it indicates ongoing and possibility of growing sadness 
and isolation and hopelessness. And we're living in one of the best economies in the world, even though we're struggling. We've got high inflation and we've got you know, food prices as part of that are extremely high, gas prices, energy prices. I get it. We have our problems in our economy. But you would expect to find this type of hopelessness and this type of persistent sadness in teenage girls in cultures that are extremely hostile to women. And that's not what we have here in the United States. Now, some feminists would like to convince you that that's true, but it's not true. It's, we, we have a very open, welcoming culture. I mean, it, things are good in this country right now. Certainly good to the point that we shouldn't have 57% of our teenage girls saying that they just can't get, they can't shake their sadness. They can't get away from this feeling of hopelessness. And when we see a 60% increase in anything that is devastating to a, a large portion of the teenage population, I, I, that should raise alarm bells. We should be serious about trying to find out what is the cause of this persistent sadness and hopelessness in these girls. 30% of teen girls say they had seriously c c considered committing suicide in the past year. That's an 11% increase from 2011 when the rate was 19%. Boys answering the same questions indicated that 24, per, uh, excuse me, 14 percent of them had seriously considered suicide. That's up one percent from 2011. So with boys, this hasn't been an explosion. I mean, it, we've we've always been at about 13, 12 percent, somewhere in that category of boys who would say that they'd contemplated suicide in the past year. But for girls, it's been an explosion again. No matter what study you look at, social media has a strong impact on girls, teenage girls, when it comes to their self-image, when it comes to their body image, when it comes to their understanding of who they are. It's being shaped on social media, and the way that it's being shaped is leading these girls into despair. More than one in 10 teenage girls, that's 10%, said they'd been forced to have sex in the last year or at some point in their life. That represents a 27% jump from 2019 that answered the question in the same way. This is the first time since the CDC has been tracking this metric that it saw an increase. And the first increase we get is 27%. That's more than significant. That, that's a disaster. Nearly 1%, uh, excuse me, nearly 1 in 5 teen girls, that would be 20%, said they've experienced sexual violence in the past year. That's a 20% increase since 2017. Nearly 70% of all students identifying as LGBT said they suffered from persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. Now, wh what's unusual to me about that is in the last 10 years, we have seriously ramped up the the acceptance of LGBT. I mean, particularly, well, let's go back to 2015 with the Obergefell decision. Since then, and that's that gives us about eight years of seriously ramping up, particularly in education. I mean, you go 
to a lot of public schools today, and they're doing a lot to promote and to encourage LGBT behavior and LGBT identification. And, of course, now we know that transgender is exploding, particularly among teenage girls, and a lot of that is linked. There are plenty of studies, some out of Britain, some out of the United States, that point to the fact that teenage girls are having all these transgender uh, social identity issues because they're coming from social media. It's like a contagion. It's like they get in a chat room or they or, or get in, not necessarily a chat room, but in with a group of girls on Instagram and Facebook where they begin to have these conversations. And but because society gives a, gives a lot of attention to LGBTQ issues, these girls begin to identify to pick up that attention because teenage girls and teenage boys, for that matter, but they want attention. They, but when the family breaks down and they feel like they're not being loved or they're not getting the attention that they need at home, then they turn to the Internet and they begin to form these groups that draw attention to themselves the more they identify as LGBTQ. And so it's a social construct. It's a it's a social contagion. It, it's happening because, you know, not because all of a sudden in our biological history do we have an explosion of young girls that really and truly are having gender dysphoria issues. It no, it it's not contagion. It's not in the water. It's not some kind of spreading virus. It's very simply the social contagion of what it means when groups of girls get together and they begin to find some type of refuge, some type of attention-getting behavior that reinforces their understanding of their gender, and they begin to claim that they're transgender. They begin to to move in that direction. And then when they're encouraged, when, when they do that, instead of being helped to see that this is something that they're going through, that they will come through and will that their minds will change about this later on. Instead of that, they're, they're being encouraged to embrace it. So societal norms have broken down to the point that we're just simply allow, you know, not only allowing but encouraging this type of behavior. And golly, we're getting more of it. When we encourage it and we talk about it in a positive way, we get a lot more of it. But it's not helping the girls. They're still, even though they're being told that it's okay to be gay, it's okay to be uh, transgender, it's okay to be non-binary, it's okay to, to be whatever you've chosen in the sexual soup that's out there that's that's got all these kind of ingredients in it that you can choose— it, it, even being told that it's okay is not dealing with their persistent sadness and feelings of hopelessness. In fact, my argument would be that that is the thing that's adding to their persistent sadness and hopelessness, that that's what's pushing them in that direction. There are no expectations of normal behavior. We're back to Sarah Huckabee Sanders when she said we're we're not choosing between left and right or conservative and progressive. We're choosing between crazy and normal. And the more crazy we get, the more it messes up the social interaction of teenagers and the more it causes them to be in distress. 
Show program note here for you quickly. Uh, Dave Wilson is the president of Palmetto Family, uh, which is one of the largest conservative groups in South Carolina. And we've got a big event coming up March 18th. Uh, we have um, a lot of speakers coming to Charleston, and it's called Vision 24, a conservative forum. So in other words, it's it's not a presidential forum because a lot of people haven't announced yet but that we're trying to get to come there. We still don't know all of the participants, but we have been confirmed that we have Nikki Haley, who's going to come and speak. She just announced that she's running for president yesterday. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And also Tim Scott, who is widely believed will announce later in the spring or maybe even before that, that he's going to be a candidate in 2024. So both, both, both of them will be there. We have Senator Kennedy from Louisiana coming. We have Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's coming from uh, Tennessee. So we're beginning to really load up on great speakers for uh, an all-day event down in Charleston, March the 18th. So Dave Wilson's going to join us at 8.05 this morning to talk about that. And then I've already talked at length about the bill, which is H. 3447. It's the Human Life Protection Act. It's going to be debated in the House today, and we've kind of laid out the issues and talked about the pressure that's going to have to be put on the Senate once this bill clears the House. And we'll have Representative John McCravey, who is the main author of the bill. He'll join us at 830 this morning, and we'll get his perspective on what today is going to be like in the uh, debate in the House. So this is the place to get your news and information and to hear who the newsmakers are. And uh, don't forget that as we approach March 31st, which is Gary Miller's retirement date, uh, his radio talk 919-897 is going to be changing formats. So this program is going to be shifting over to a website that's under development. Uh, it's going to be shifting over to YouTube and we'll still be on Facebook Live. So uh, help me pass along the word uh, about Facebook to join us for the program if you think it's beneficial. I had somebody call me yesterday, Richard um, Rowe, who's with the Colson Foundation, um, and, and talks about the, the the project where you go through the the study to become a Colson Fellow. It's the Colson Fellow Project, and he called yesterday as I was coming home from. Columbia, and he just said he wanted me to know that one of the students that is is in that program, and actually this is one of the programs I think that was taking place in D.C., had quoted me and used me as a footnote when they were talking about pro-life issues. Um, and he also said that people had, when he was on the program twice this past year, that people really responded by signing up, that he got a lot of response from this radio program. And then he said something that's really kind of got me emotional. He said, you know, he said, You're, you are uh, helping the Colson legacy to stay alive and to move forward. And, uh, of course, that means the world to me because of how much I respected and cared about Chuck Colson and his mission. So... Um, all of that. Now, let's get to let's get back to this report. Oh, I was telling you about the show. I'm sorry, I got distracted. Um the this show is going to continue and I told you that in these different venues starting in March, we'll we'll tell you um exactly how you can follow. We'll start 
announcing, like I'll have the website address, we'll have the timing, the name of the show. We're going to make some minor changes to the name so that as a podcast it can draw a little bit more attention for people who are looking for something specific. So all of that will be coming forth in March. In fact, all of the equipment that I've, I ordered to be able to do this at home, it, the rest of it came yesterday. So I've got the camera and the microphones and the board and the headphones and all the stuff. And so I'm looking forward to trying to put all that together this weekend. It's going to take a little bit of time. But um, I'm gonna, we're going to be ready to launch um, April 1st. So there shouldn't be a gap between this program, the format changing here, and the, uh, Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Beam under the whatever the new name is going forward April 1st. All right, we were talking about the CDC and the information that they're finding about um, teenagers. And the CDC, of course, is couching this in the context of all of this happened to our teenagers because of COVID, because of lockdowns. And it, But if you look back, this has been a trend with teenagers that has been moving toward suicide uh, ideation, that is this fascination with suicide, since 2010. And so it, 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 it can't all be laid at the feet of COVID. There's no question that when you take teenagers, you take them out of school, you've got juniors and seniors in high school that were expecting to perform with various sports teams and maybe have an opportunity to get a college scholarship, and all of a sudden the season is canceled. There's the, you know, we're, we're doing school from home. Um, and the social interaction that is so necessary for development among teenagers is reduced to nothing more than a screen. It, it's a screen with their teachers. It's a screen with their friends, whether that's Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. And so all of that um, had a, certainly had an adverse effect. But the attitudes and the, the dysfunction, I should say, of the way teenagers relate to each other did not just start with the COVID lockdown. Those things were, were blooming. They were skyrocketing, actually. They were happening in the lead-up to COVID, and COVID just simply pushed those numbers higher. So here's, let, let's talk about students that identify as some way other than heterosexual. Now, in this particular study, the CDC didn't ask the question about transgender. They just asked about lesbian, bisexual, uh, LGB, uh, what, whatever the LGB, without the transgender. Uh, they had LGB plus is what they called it, which actually transgender could have been included in the plus sign at the end of that. But they didn't have specific questions about it. But here's, here's how they answered. Nearly 70% of all students identifying as LGB said they suffered from persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Now, remember, among all teenage girls, it was 57%. Among those who identify as something other than heterosexual, it was 70%. Nearly 50% said they've considered attempting suicide, and 25% said they did attempt to commit suicide. This group was identified, again, as LGB+, because they didn't ask specifically uh, questions about gender. Now, what does the CDC say we should do about this? I mean, what what would you guess? Do you think the CDC is recommending the strengthening of, uh, strengthening of families, the idea of more social interaction between teen teenagers in a healthy environment? 
Do you think they're recommending that social media be cut back, that the amount of time that teenage girls in particular are spending with Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, that that be reduced and that also be reduced for the guys as well? Uh, no. What they're suggesting is that the schools become more welcoming, that the schools encourage more LGBT behavior, that the schools create safe spaces, that the schools deal with any pushback against uh, anything that has to do with sexuality, that they encourage that environment. And you know what? I, I'm just telling you, I really believe that the embracing of LGBT, and I'm going to go ahead and put the T in there because we're going back and talking about those things, LGBTQ+, the, the fact that we have embraced that as a culture and made it the norm is the thing itself that is contributing to all of this sadness, all of this suicide ideation. I mean, I've got a story here this morning about, you know, transgender detransitioning that is is just heartbreaking it's five individuals that are saying please don't listen to the people that are telling you that you're not the gender that you were born with because once you start having surgery there's not a lot you can do about it and and their suicide ideation their sadness and persistent hopelessness has been greatly increased by the fact that they went ahead and actually had body parts cut off or added to. I mean, it's just, it, it's a terrible situation. The thing that will bring stability is teaching young people, for example, teaching young men that as they grow up, they need to be responsible citizens. They're going to need to find a good job, be good providers, think about getting married. Women should be thinking about getting married, having children, you know, creating a family, being part of a legacy where they step into history and pass on to the next generation the values that they have developed over time. I mean, stability, creating an atmosphere of stability would be nice. I mean, that would, I, I guarantee you, you would begin to see an abating of this hopelessness and sadness. The hopelessness and sadness is when we tell young people that they need to focus on themselves. You know, there's an old saying, but it but it's true. Don't think less of your of yourself. Think about yourself less. In other words, get off of being focused on you and everything being about you and your world revolving around you. This is. And this is the problem. We've got so many teenagers that are being told that their personal happiness is tied to whatever they say that it is, rather than saying your personal happiness is tied to how you relate to culture, how you relate to other people, how you, how you develop and understand your future in terms of what your purpose is in this life. And as long as we're telling them that their purpose in this life is to be non-binary, transgender, um, whatever else, then we're not going to help in alleviating this problem. And yet the CDC says that's exactly what we need to do. I mean, it's almost like we've dispensed this poison, and now the antidote is to take a double dose of the poison and just come back and keep pushing it. Um, you know, no, and the CDC doesn't even mention social media. And, it's, and it doesn't mention the effect that pornography is having. We, we're, we've got a sea of pornography out there. And I was shocked when I read this stati statistic. But 15% of the, 
of children are now exposed to pornography in some way before they're 10 years old. 15% before they reach the age of 10. And a lot of these pornographic images are violent. There's another statistic that came out of this. About 83% of those who do view porn on a regular basis have seen violent images associated with porn. In other words, porn that represents rape and violence associated with it. And we're astounded to find out that teenage girls are experiencing an, an increase in sexual assault. We're creating the environment to make this happen and pretending that by being freer with our sexual identity and freer with uh, sexual the sexual revolution and the effects of the sexual revolution, by being freer, that's how we're going to fix the problem. Now, we're, we're going to exacerbate the problem until it becomes way more than even a crisis. You need to know a little bit about Noah Berlatsky before we dive into a column that he had yesterday at Insider, and it was I think it made it into the Atlantic and maybe some other places yesterday. But to, to understand kind of who he is, he's a freelance writer and editor, describes himself as being self-employed, but he does edit the online comics and culture website at the Atlantic. Um, he also uh, edits a website called The Hooded Utilitarian, and he's the author of the book Wonder Woman, Bondage and Feminism. Let's see if I can. Well, I can't get that whole title. I don't even know that I want the whole title. But uh, anyway, so what he does is he's kind of a freelance writer who gets published in various places. And yesterday, uh, he had a column in the the Insider. And just to give, I, I mean, the reason I'm going to read some of this to you. And by the way, if if you're listening to this with young children. You, you probably need to find something else for them to do. If you're in the car taking them to school right now and you're listening, if they're listening to the program, um, I would uh, distract them or I hate to tell anybody not to listen, but I would not listen up to the top of the hour, okay, uh, and then come back and join us for Dave Wilson. Because th- but, but this is so indicative to me of where our culture is, what we're doing to ourselves, and why our ch- our teenagers are so messed up. Now, this is this is a dad writing about his family, and here's the title: My wife is bisexual and non-binary, and my daughter is transgender. My queer family helped me better understand myself and my masculinity. So here's first: My daughter came out as transgender. Then my bisexual wife came out as non-binary. As the only non-queer person in the family, I often feel left out by their shared experience. But my queer family has taught me a lot about myself and how my masculinity can be less restrictive. Now, I'm just reading from this because, I, I mean, you, you want to talk about an environment where we are setting people up to fail. We are creating an environment that is later on in life going to be a disaster My 19-year-old daughter last month invited her mother to see the queer comedian Chris Fleming. My wife was thrilled. Our daughter still lives with us, but she often communicates in brief grunts as she scurries down to her basement lair, emerging only to let in friends and forage for chicken nuggets. She doesn't often include us in her social plans. Now, doesn't that sound like a, a wonderful family environment? She grunts 
at her at her parents on the way down to her lair. Now I know he's trying to be he's trying to be creative and and funny and and engaging with the way that he writes, but he's revealing something here. I mean, they have they have virtually no relationship. Now, yeah, uh, the 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 mother and the daughter are going to go to uh, to see a, a a queer comedian together. So I guess they're bonding in some sense, but. You know, they're all excited about this because it's so rare. Um, so here's Berlaski saying, you are hip and happening with the kids, I told my wife. She rolled her eyes, but I could tell she was pleased. I was not invited on this excursion because I wasn't a fan of Fleming. My wife has tried to explain his his appeal. He's so funny. My wife and daughter daughter's love for Fleming is rooted in another commonality. They're both queer. My daughter's transgender, my wife is bisexual and non-binary. As the boring cisgender straight guy in the family, I just don't get some aspects of queer culture. I try to make an interest, to take an interest, but your demographic destiny sometimes rears up and says, Pfft. but I'm grateful to be outnumbered in my family by the other demographics. When you share a family with queer people, your understanding of love becomes more expansive, as does your understanding of yourself. Our daughter came out as bisexual in middle school. In high school, she reassessed and came out as trans and lesbian. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm really confused at this point because I think that if she came out as, as trans and it's a she, then that means it's a, it's a guy who is convinced that they're female, and now this female has decided that She's a lesbian, which means she likes girls, but she's a guy, really, biologically. So that's that. That would be, uh, I would think, somewhat convenient. If if you're a guy and you want to be transgender, then and you still want to like girls, you just become a lesbian, um, as in your female persona, and then you can still like girls. <sighs> Often when families, even supportive ones, discover their children are queer, they don't feel like it's a loss. There's a loss of the past because the child you thought you knew isn't who you thought they were. And there's a loss of the future because society is, in many ways, a, homo a homophobic garbage fire and queer uh, people face discrimination in many professions. But we didn't view her coming out as a loss. Instead, we saw a lot of upsides. My wife was better positioned to appreciate those than some parents. My wife has known she's bisexual since she was in middle school in northwestern Indiana, though she was heavily and miserably closeted until college. It's been a relief for her and a validation that our daughter felt comfortable coming out at home and at school. My daughter is confident. She's happy. She has queer friends who sometimes pass through on their way to the basement lair and stop to talk about Fleming tattoos, the queer art and that they're making, or the queer uh, anarchist collectives that they're living in. The queer anarchist collectives. So they're how messed up, lost, and and completely confused are we as a culture? And do, do you really think that this is a family picture that's going to end well? I mean, does anybody believe that something good for these people individually or something good about our society as a whole is going to be accomplished by this lifestyle and the way that it's being described? 
And we wonder why people, why particularly teenage girls, are confused, they're suicidal, they're depressed, they have feelings of perpetual sadness, persistent, I should say, sadness. I mean, there's no, there's no way to describe this except a complete loss of ourselves in the way that we were created. When, when you take the creation of human beings by a sovereign God who loves us and made us in his image, and you set that to the side, and then you, you manufacture a world where all of the parameters, all of the calling of God, all of the design of God in our sexuality and the way we relate to each other is trashed and put away, and in that world you think people are going to prosper and they're going to... It is total self-absorption and total futility in the end. I mean, how confused do you have to be to be trans, a transgender male who's female but is a lesbian so relates to girls that that is a um a, i mean i don't i don't even know they want to discuss he wants to describe society as a dumpster fire because we're we hear this and know that it's not good for them that that's not going to end well for them as a family i mean even the relationships they described are tenuous surface only and feeding off of each other 